Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. I'm glad you tuned into Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Harvey Carroll about the experience of illness. Welcome to the program. Hi. Now, people seem to be less accepting when an illness is, is not visible. Yeah, that uh, there's there's a growing awareness now that not all illnesses are visible. For example, just in, in an airport recently and saw a sign saying, you know, you don't you don't have to explain yourself. Just come to the. The, the disabled assistance point and we'll help you from there. So, yeah, again, and this is, this is again, this exemplifies this idea that there's really, um, so much diversity within illness experiences. And I've had a lot of experiences over the years of meeting somebody and thinking, Oh, you know, fresh faced, young and beautiful. Uh, how lucky are they? And then they come and they tell you stuff about their health. And it turns out that, you know, a lot of people have, a very very tricky ride and um which is why in part i think this phenomenology of illness stuff is really useful because it gives people tools with which to articulate their experiences without feeling that they have to fit into the medical um you know scylla or the the kind of um social scripts uh charybdis that i was describing a minute ago why do you think that the experience of illness has received little philosophical attention? Well, um, for a few reasons. Uh, the first is that the body in general, if we look broadly at the history of philosophy outside phenomenology, um, hasn't really been a source of much focus. Uh, we've got a lot of focus on, on reason, on um, the, 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 the psyche or the mind, Lots of focus on rationality, on, um, you know, epistemology and so on, but relatively little, um, understanding of ourselves as, as just another species of animal, namely human animals. Uh, and of course, you know, if we look at the, um, the big kind of revolutions in philosophy, the, the, the Kantian, uh, Copernican revolution, as it were, and then, and then, and then Darwin, and, and thirdly, uh, Darwin telling us that we are nothing but yet another species of animal. And then finally, Freud and this idea that we don't just have, you know, we're not perspicu- perspicuous to ourselves. We don't have this uh, this immediate capacity to look within ourselves and introspect and know everything there is to know about ourselves, that we are opaque to ourselves. These three combined, I think, uh, with a phenological account that really sees the human being as a body subject is a very potent but difficult to accept picture because it really um, 
expresses or, or, or uh, this this picture makes us understand that we actually we're limited. We're part of nature. We're limited by our bodies. Um, we're, we're not these kind of ideal creatures we maybe thought we were. So I think it's uh, it, it's been a view that was that took a long time to develop through these these three revolutions I just mentioned. Um, and also it's not particularly uh, palatable for for many reasons. I mean, being embodied, having a body implies vulnerability to illness and accident. It implies dependence on other people, links up, you know, to a lot of work in feminist philosophy, emphasizing that we don't just come into existence. We're born out of a out of a a, a woman's body, that we are um that we're that we're mortal, that we, you know, we're finite on sort of both ends, as it were. We come into existence, we also go out of existence. And of course, uh, there's a big philosophical literature on death, but again, that literature maybe largely doesn't maybe account for the fact that you don't just die, you die usually in the vast majority of cases after having fallen ill. So um, I think what a corrective to that is to take a sort of life cycle point of view, not to look at the philosophical subject or agent as this, this, you know, ageless, placeless, young, relatively young, healthy adult, but to say, you know, we, we come out of dependence and we, we return to nature when we die in complete dependence on others. We're vulnerable to, to affliction, to accident, to illness, to injury. Um, and we, we need to find a way to articulate what a good life would be given that we are these limited, fallible, vulnerable creatures. So my most recent work is actually on this idea of, of vulnerability and what it means to say that humans are, we are vulnerable creatures. How does illness modify one's body, values and world? Yeah, so, so there's several, I think, useful concepts to, um, that phenomenology gives us to, to, to help us. And what I've done is I've taken general phenomenological concepts and applied them to the case of illness. So being in the world, you know, Heidegger's conception of what a human being is, is quite, um, quite a useful one because it captures the way we are existentially as individuals but also within the context of the world. And what happens in illness is that all elements of that picture are transformed. Our relationship to ourselves is transformed. Our relationship to other people is transformed. And our relationship to our world is transformed. Uh, the world is sometimes radically, um, you know, diminished or, 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 or becomes more hostile, if you like, in illness. So, you know, I, I think um, as a healthy person, um, you are kind of free to come, come and go as you please. So say, you know, you want to go for a walk after dinner and you can just go for a stroll. And, you know, when you feel you've strolled enough, you turn back and come home. Um, in the case of illness, that, that naturalness or that kind of, um, easy flowing, uh, free activity becomes kind of encumbered. So I need to take oxygen with me. I need to work out, you know, uh, am I, you know, have I eaten too much to be able to do a walk? How far can I walk before getting tired? Um, is it downhill one way? Then how am I going to do the uphill on the way back? And these series of constraints, they're not just practical constraints. They're constraints that I think add up to ultimately change this idea of an enjoyable, free post-dinner stroll 
into something quite restricted and quite uh, anxiety inducing and quite requiring planning. So in all of these respects, your your projects, your way of being in the world is changed by illness. Uh, and I'll, I'll mention maybe just one more concept, which is uh, which is my own, which is that of bodily doubt. Um, and it's a paper I published in 2013 that talks about how we move again from this taken for granted, natural, easy relationship with our body to something that is much more fraught and much more, uh, you, you know, uh, uncertain. So we have this sort of tacit bodily certainty that, you know, our bodies are letting us sit here, chat to each other. You know, we're conscious. We can speak. We can, you know, continue to see each other and hear each other and lots of things are working fine but in illness of course that bodily certainty that tacit sense of confidence we have is undermined by these illness experiences experiences of failure uh, of bodily failure that can be really frightening and really um really paralyzing actually um and i i thought of illness as simply this experience of moving from bodily certainty to bodily doubt Right. Yeah, it, it's interesting you're saying that because I think we've all had the feeling when we've had very temporary illness, like, oh, when I when I get a cold or, you know, some sort of illness that I, I know it's not going to last forever. But just in that few days when I get ill, I think, oh, I just can't wait to get better again. And I think that by having the occasional illness, it actually really makes you appreciate not being ill, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As long as it's occasional and transient, then it does give you that contrast, doesn't it? Um, but I think, again, going back to this point about the life cycle view, um, over a lifetime, people will, again, in the vast majority of cases, become ill. So, you know, we need to equip ourselves um, not just seeing this uh, illness as a kind of counterpoint to health, but seeing it as, as as part of the life cycle. And it's something that will almost inevitably afflict us. So I think uh, what I try to do in my work is to say illness is much more fundamental to how we are and how we philosophize, because it's not just um, something that happens and then we kind of shoo it away with with a bit of paracetamol. It's It's really... It could, it, one of the conditions for, for human existence is that we are these body subjects and we, um, <clears throat> we are dependent on our bodies and our body, our bodies age and, um, and become ill and fail us in, in various ways. And that is just, uh, something we need to sort of work with, you know? What, what is the aim of phenomenology of illness? Several aims. I mean, the first for me was just to articulate illness experiences um, in their unreduced richness, complexity uh, and kind of dappled nature containing a lot of bad, but also, you know, a surprising amount of, of, of goodness of the, the, the edification and post-traumatic growth I was describing earlier. I think it's also politically very empowering for ill people to um, to have the philosophical tools to, first of all, conceptualize what's happening to them. And then secondly, to be able to convey that to other people. 
Um, sometimes people talk about illnesses ineffable or incommunicable and say these bodily experiences just can't be shared with other people. Uh, they're difficult to articulate. They're difficult to share. But it's really important that we do that. We tell other people how this illness has affected me. Um, so it also has a kind of political aim, which is to to get people who are often disempowered and weak and tired and reliant on large bureaucratic healthcare systems that um, are slow and unre- sometimes unresponsive to, to, to make them feel like they do have a, a voice, you know, in, in the world. Another reason why it's important is because sometimes these illness accounts are really important for, for example, um, health regulation bodies. How are they going to do their work if patients don't tell them what their experiences of, say, healthcare provision have been like. So they're really important practically for things like health regulation, improvement of health services, um, seeing how health messages are received by people who are ill and so on. And then, and then finally, um, I think there's also a really big domain. Another part of, big part of my work in recent years has been on something called epistemic injustice which is the way in which a uh, a speaker or somebody who tries to convey an experience of their own um, can be kind of epistemically uh, crippled, if you like, by uh, a lack of belief, by people belittling their experiences, um, by people not listening. And I'm really interested in how health accounts of um, receiving healthcare and accounts of illness get um, minimized, twisted, ignored um, in, in various instances. So, you, you know, every every few years, there's there's at least in the UK, there's a scandal of some sort of healthcare facility being found to be substandard. And then it turns out that for years previously, patients and families of patients have been saying the care isn't good enough. This person isn't receiving what they need. There is a problem in the system. Um, so how do we get those kind of voices not to just be able to be recognized retroactively when it's too late, but to be recognized in, in real time? That's, I think, one of the things that phenomenology of illness as a, as a toolkit, if you like, for patients to articulate their experiences can be really useful for. So it's, it does have ultimately, I think, a political aim to be able to support and empower people who are, again, in a very vulnerable position to say how they feel and what they need and to get other people to listen to that. How is illness a philosophical tool? Um, so, again, I use a lot of phenomenological concepts in my work. And to me, having these concepts is not just a way of um, ordering an experience, although it is that importantly as well. It is also a way of saying, um, you, here are some new concepts to help you think about the illness concepts that are not medical concepts, that are not uh, solely based on social stereotypes of what it's like to be ill. Here, like being in the world. So I developed a patient toolkit, and one of the steps in the toolkit is to give people, explain what this being in the world is and say, okay, so now I've given you the concept, tell me, uh, or articulate in some way, how has your illness changed the way you are in the world? And people go, oh, uh, let me tell you, this happened to me with my spouse and this happened with my children and this happens with strangers. And this is how um, 
the terrain around me has has become you know difficult and, and hostile and all of a sudden they've got a tool with which to to articulate the experience and i think that is that is really extremely important for people to 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 have those concepts so i think by the sharing of concepts what you're doing is giving people new ways to think about their situation um <clears throat> there's lots of other initiatives in in arts and health for example that use other techniques filmmaking um you know uh um visual art and various kind of creative processes to to articulate the experiences the point the main point is to to, to give um ill persons the sense that their experience is valuable it's valid and it's worth articulating would you say illness is being towards death yes and no that's a good question <laughs> I mean, we all are being towards death. I mean, that's just Heidegger's really conception of what it means to be alive. Every day you live is one day, takes you one day closer to your death, even if you don't know when that death is going to happen or how. Um, so we are these beings towards death. And um, how we deal with that fact or how we, we encounter it do we deny? Do we embrace? Do we accept? Do we ruminate? Do we obsess? Um, is, is a huge existential question for, for Heidegger. Um, so we all are beings towards death, but I think what illness does is it really makes it much more salient and much more ingrained in your everyday that you are this being towards death, that your body is fall- fallible, that things have gone wrong and will continue to go wrong. Um, you know, that a, a very certain death awaits us all so i think it's a sort of being towards death that is maybe um highlighted or emphasized or um maybe has a more vigorous presence in one's everyday yeah i I suppose if you did have a long-term illness you know perhaps it is a psychological thing that you you would feel sort of closer towards death yes yes it's it's inevitable i think Mm. now i think you you mentioned this before but is there epistemic justice in healthcare? i think we can certainly describe what an ideal of epistemic justice in healthcare might be like i mean it would be i guess a situation where um Patient testimonies are solicited and sought where people have respectful spaces to describe their experiences and testimonies, where people's interpretations of their illness experience are respected and validated. And most, maybe most significant, uh, of the most practical significance, um, where those accounts are actually used when we develop new healthcare services, when we monitor the success of existing programs, when we develop clinical guidelines and so on. So one common objection for the inclusion of patient testimonies in the development of guidelines is to say, well, we're only using quantitative data. With these patient testimonies and narratives, we don't know what to do with them, how to synthesize them with the quantitative data. And I think... um, There are ways to do that. And the qualitative 
data, the patient testimonies, for example, are really crucial and have to be taken into account. So epistemically just healthcare systems would be ones that would have uh, processes to include and take into consideration patient views, testimonies and interpretations uh, when making any and all decisions. So the decisions would include the patient. So the kind of um, uh, one of the kind of popular slogans is nothing about me without me. Right. So don't make decisions about my care. Don't develop uh, programs, clinical interventions and so on without without asking me how how that would affect me, how I would receive it, as it were. So it is, again, quite a quite a political uh, uh, program, this whole epistemic justice program. And it's uh, again for I think for patients, it's very empowering to be given that concept and to be saying, you, you know, Here's how you can help your own cause. Here's how you can demand epistemic justice or work with healthcare systems towards developing or cultivating a, a culture of epistemic justice. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Um, can I mention my books? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so I've got two kind of, um, Twin books. One is uh, a, a, a short book written for a non for for a general audience um, called "Illness: The Cry of the Flesh," and that book was written quite soon after, within kind of a year of my diagnosis. And it's it's really an account of what happened to me when I when I became ill, and it's kind of half my own story of what happened to me and how kind of things unfolded since I started feeling breathless, and then half. Uh, developing that was the first time I developed these philosophical tools, the phenomenological tools with which to understand that experience. Uh, so, so that's uh, that's one book, and then the other one, more recent, 2016, is called Phenomenology of Illness, and it's uh, it's a, a more philosophical, more systematic, uh, uh, you know, account of that framework that I've developed over time. Um, yeah, and I should also mention that I was really fortunate to um, to have funding from the Wellcome Trust to, to run a project called The Life of Breath, which was all about breathing and breathlessness, which is an entirely, you know, a topic for another conversation. Um, and there's there's some sort of resources and, and tools like guided relaxation and so on involving breathing that are also available on the um, the website, which is just called lifeofbreath.org. So do you have any future study plans? Yes. Yeah, so um, I think I mentioned I'm very interested now in this idea of looking at vulnerability more broadly. I think for two reasons. First is because I think these illness experiences um, have important similarities and affinities to other uh, adverse experiences, bereavement, loss, displacement, and so on. <clears throat> and it's, interestingly, um, there has been some work talking about the parallels between being ill and being incarcerated, for example, the loss of freedom and so on. Um, and the other reason I'm interested in vulnerability is because I'm not just, I'm interested in how people become vulnerable or how people are vulnerabilized um, and how there are particular sources of social, in particular social and other kinds of injustice that can make people more vulnerable, increasingly vulnerable over time. So I'm also interested in 
understanding how these processes unfold and describing them again um, using these philosophical concepts that I've been talking about. Right. Oh, that's great. Very interesting topic. Thanks so much for coming onto the program today. Thank you for having me, Beth. And I've been speaking with Professor Javi Carroll about the experience of illness. So glad you tuned in and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway. 